Hello and welcome to these audio excerpts from Project ECHO COVID-19 Pandemic Response Series recorded on Thursday the 7th of May 2020 brought to you by the Westwick PHN. Session 6 brought the focus to paediatrics. GP Catherine Pye raised the question to the group and to the panel of how do we in practical terms triage assess and manage kids at this time. Our panel was Deb Friedman, Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases, Dr Chris Cooper, Paediatrician and Director of Paediatrics at Bowen Health, and GP Catherine Pye presented a service system case presentation to ask panellists and participants to reflect upon how they were to, in practical terms, consider what to wear, where to see and when to refer children under five with fever and respiratory symptoms. So here are the excerpts of the panel presentation, followed by rapid questions and answers at the end. I won't include the discussion, but please come join us next week, Thursday, the 14th of May, 7.30 in the morning, when we continue our conversation with the same panel about paediatric presentations at this time. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to West Vic PHN Project ECHO. This is session six, and I'd like to begin with an acknowledgement to country. I would like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land upon which we're all uh, Zooming in, meeting from today, and I would like to pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people connecting in today. Our agenda for today, well, it's eight weeks since the COVID-19 pandemic was declared and we are waiting announcements of the 11th of May about our state of emergency um, with view to understanding a little bit more about what gradual easing of restrictions might mean. So through this series, we've examined broad regional planning for covid we then had a focus on vulnerable groups in the sectors of aged care and disability. Uh, in the last two sessions, we um, examined emerging models of care and a new normal in continuing primary care in our, in our region. And the next group we'll be looking at is kids. So evidence suggests that unlike seasonal flu, they do not appear to be vectors for spreading infection, but we're going to hear more about that from our content experts in infectious diseases. But what could we be missing with our current models of telehealth when it comes to looking after the COVID and non-COVID needs, care needs of this group? So what does COVID look like in kids? How should we be triaging the common winter infections and respiratory presentations at this time? And what can we safely do with telehealth who do we need to see face-to-face? -face? So here's the learning outcomes for today as for other sessions. Um, it's really to think about new guidelines into practice, emerging models of care, real-world experience of implementing these care models and to build your knowledge and current resources, supports, referral pathways and to be part of a community of practice in um, teaching and learning. So now I'd like to introduce our panel this morning. Joining us again is Associate Professor Deborah Friedman, Infectious Diseases Physician. I'd like to welcome Dr Chris Cooper, Head of Paediatrics at Bowen Health. Um, I'd like to, of course, um, in, uh, introduce you to, if you haven't yet um, joined us, uh, Mr Glenn Bradley, uh, Assistant Director of Services and Systems here at the PHN and Director of the Pandemic Response, and Dr Kate Graham, our GP Lead of Health Pathways, and they'll be speaking um, with us about um, updates for the PHN at the end. I would like to now hand over to Deb Friedman to bring us an infectious diseases update and, um, and to talk to us about COVID infection in kids. Thanks. Good morning. Thanks very much, Bianca. So in terms of an update of where we're at both locally and nationally, in Australia there are um, 6,875 cases with 96 deaths, 
which equals a case fatality rate of 1.4%, and 1% of tests that have been done nationwide are positive. In Victoria, we've got 1,440 cases with no changes in our regional numbers. We haven't had an increase in Geelong or anywhere through southwest Victoria um, for several weeks now. And in fact, um, referring to our doubling time, um, we're now um, 39 days is our current doubling time. Um, when we compare that to what we were at in late March when it was three days. Um, of all of the cases in Victoria and also all of the cases in Australia, 10% of them are unlinked. That means that they don't have a known source of infection. And I just also wanted to highlight that of the 96 deaths nationwide, there are only three deaths in people under the age of 60 years. The testing blitz is ongoing but coming to an end in the next few days. There have been a few asymptomatic cases identified through this blitz. Um, the R0 or the basic reproductive number is very low, so it's under one. However, what it's, what's been seen, especially in the last few weeks with recent clusters, is that it can be volatile in the case of people in close proximity. And a good example of that was um, the recent outbreak in an abattoir. Um, of note, just for everybody, there have been 115 outbreaks of COVID-19 in meatworks around the world, which was um, described in the MMWR last week. The strategy of elimination, according to Brett Sutton in Victoria, has been a welcome surprise and was certainly not the strategy. That leads me to just describe very quickly the strategies as we head slowly towards recovery. One option is elimination. This would require ongoing lockdown ongoing internal travel restrictions. And it, need, it means that cases need to fall to just about zero with ongoing extensive testing. As I said, us getting close to elimination during the last several weeks has been a welcome surprise because our strategy has been more one of controlled adaptation, otherwise known as suppression. This means that ultimately we'll be moving towards a gradual relaxation of measures and accepting that there will be a risk of small clusters and spikes. It would still involve some restriction to overseas travel, but ongoing testing and contact tracing would be the pivotal parts of this strategy. But both, whether you aim for elimination or a controlled adaptation, both assume a vaccine in the next few years. Without a vaccine, it will not be possible to achieve herd immunity. Um, I wanted to touch on the role of children, given our topic for today's ECHO. In Australia, there, are 70, there have been 75 cases in children under nine years of age, and there have been 202 cases in children 10 to 19 years of age. That, that equals a very small proportion of the total cases. Infections are known to occur at a lower rate among children, and this has been well demonstrated overseas as well. They tend to have a much milder infection. The symptoms tend to be in line with the typical case definition of fever, typically fever and cough, but fever and other respiratory tract infection symptoms are also possible. What's been demonstrated well in New South Wales, in New Zealand, in Iceland and in Singapore is very limited transmission from children to adults and where there are clusters, the children do not appear to be the hidden vectors and do not, to be, do not appear to be integral to the transmission. There's far more transmission from adult to adult 
and from adult to child than there is from child to child. Teenagers, however, perhaps begin more to approach the adult risk of transmission, but they are also much more likely to practice social distancing than are young children. Um, obviously, the return to school is a political decision and it will involve some caveats related to improving hygiene practices, um, not only cleaning of play equipment and high-touch surfaces, but also restricting um, meetings between adults, so teacher-to-teacher -teacher, um, meetings and teacher-to-parent meetings. Um, what we need to expect in the future is clusters in the areas of weakness in our community involving aged care, mental health facilities, perhaps detention facilities, shared group homes, the homeless, and patients who are multiply comorbid and patients who are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders. We need to also recognise workplaces where it's very difficult to socially distance, and these include places such as the Meatworks. So we need to continue to support these more vulnerable groups in the community. And that's going to obviously involve care across all sectors, primary, secondary and tertiary. Um, I guess the only other thing that I did want to mention is that the Acute Respiratory Assessment Clinic, which has been functioning at Building B at Barwon Health, and this is just obviously for people locally in Geelong, that's likely to close towards the end of the month. And so we do need to determine how we're going to pick up the slack within the region to ensure that we can still have assessment of people with respiratory tract infections as we head into winter. Um, I didn't have anything else to add right now and I might hand back over to Bianca and I can take questions later. Thank you very much, Deb. Um, now I'd like to pass on to uh, Dr. Chris Cooper, um, present a little bit of an update of uh, what's been happening in kids um, more broadly in Victoria. But then most importantly, you know, what should we be seeing at this time of year and how can we continue to provide care for our um, children through our community and primary care? Yeah, thanks a lot, Bianca. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm a general paediatrician in Geelong and director of um, paediatrics at Barwon Health. Um, Look, um, Deb's given a good summary and, and is in line with my thinking that the children actually are not being uh, um, as affected with the coronavirus as adults and um, despite sort of early reports and despite what they normally do with viruses, they don't seem to be the main transmitters and the vectors for, for this virus, which, which is good to know. And in terms of the overseas experience, just in terms of what we're seeing in Victoria, that sort of is very much backed up by what we're seeing. And I attend a, a fortnightly directors of paediatrics um, Zoom meeting. Um, uh, and last week we were asked if anybody had seen any kids with coronavirus um, coming back positive. And the only person that had seen any children was Mike Starr, who's the infectious disease expert at um, Royal Children's. He'd seen two children. One was asymptomatic and one had an earache. So I think the burden of coronavirus in children in Victoria is extremely limited. Um, and looking at the DHS website, I think there's 24 children under the age of um, 14 who've had a positive uh, swab result. Doesn't mean that they can't get coronavirus and... Um, but we're thinking that it presents very similarly to other viruses in that it might cause a, an upper respiratory tract infection and doesn't have the, the serious or um, obvious complications that we see in the elderly. Um, 
there has been case reports that you might have seen in the popular press about um, a Kawasaki's type um, condition that can develop in kids with um, coronavirus. I think um, um, on the PEED forums, there's been a bit of discussion about this. What it appears is that there's been a few case reports and it's, it's, it's rare rather than um, uncommon. It's, it's very, it's, it's in the rare sort of category in places like UK and Italy. They've seen, had a few case reports of um, sort of like a, a, an inflammatory response to um, systemically um, in children who've had coronavirus, just a handful of cases. I think they're yet to be defined what, what that looks like. There's been a few, um, uh, I think, case reports also of myocarditis um, in, in children in the, those countries that have seen a lot of coronavirus. Um, so really, um, the, I suppose the pra practical practice points that, um, that I might want to highlight that are a little bit different to adults in terms of um, some of the differences, points of differences with um, management of kids with respiratory illnesses um, in this setting compared to adults is that um, there's a couple of directives that have come out from um, the children's. One is um, the, the we're currently swabbing, as I think you know, people with fever um, or respiratory symptoms, and so that'd be no different for children. But if a child has um, severe croup or any evidence of upper airway obstruction, um, then we should probably hold off doing swabs in that group um, so that you don't precipitate um, a worsening of their condition. Um, the swab can be done later in the recovery phase. So that's just being put into the RCH guidelines at the moment. Um, trying to avoid, obviously, nebulised treatment um, and so for asthma, using um, spaces, which we advocate anyway, but trying to avoid nebulizers so that you don't um, aerosolize, um, use aerosolized um, generating procedure. Um, but in croup, if, if, it's, if there's a severity that warrants it, you should, should use the neb, um, nebulized adrenaline. Um, but it should, should be um, sort of in, in keeping with the guidelines. Um, the other interesting point of debate in the last two weeks has been around um, guidelines coming out from APLS and also RCH around um, CPR. Um, in adults, you know, there's been a trend away from doing um, uh, uh, rescue breaths and, um, and uh, an emphasis on compressions in kids because most uh, arrests, which is uncommon, but when arrests occur, they usually uh, got a primary respiratory cause. Then, um, then there's a greater emphasis on actually airway support and management with bag and mask or even expired air resuscitation. So, um, that shouldn't be forgotten and shouldn't be avoided. But in um, situations where you've got the time to put on PPE, you should. Um, but um, you should shouldn't not. Um, give bag and mask and, and expired air resuscitation to kids. Um, so they're the sort of main points of difference. I think there's there's going to be a little bit of discussion come out in the case that's going to be presented around appropriate PPE and, and triaging of children. And I suppose what I'd say is that um, all of us are working in a slightly different context, whether that's within the hospital 
um, situation or in your general practice or regionally or more metropolitan. So it very much depends on your context, how you go about and approach um, managing these kids um, uh, with respiratory infections. Thanks, Chris. And you've given me a really nice segue to now introduce our experts in context. So what we say in ECHO is that we bring panellists to our experts in content and um, together with our experts in context, our participants, our GPs, nurses, practice managers, people working um, in, in our, uh, across our area to try to put this practice into play. And so um, what we'd like to do this morning is we're going to move in now to what we, I guess, call, call a more traditional ECHO style of um, meeting. And so I'm delighted today that Dr Catherine Pye has offered to um, present to us a case presentation. In this case, it's the case of a service system. And the question being about how do we triage or manage in practice, in those practical terms, um, the febrile sick child at this time. Registered listeners can head to summary notes of this discussion. Please join us next week to be part of the discussion. We now finish up with Deborah Friedman answering questions that appeared in the chat. So Bianca, I guess this comes back to a discussion about do you need a one-size-fits-all approach or do you need an approach which can be differentiated depending on the geographic location? And I think that moving forward, part of our adaptation and part of learning to live with the virus, I think it's going to be an imperative that we do have an approach that is not one-size-fits-all. Um, Metro Melbourne and other areas that have had higher numbers of cases are not the same as regional areas that might have had two or three cases. So I guess three cases in Horsham, nine in Ballarat, haven't had a case for weeks and weeks. Some areas have never had a case. So you would argue whether or not they need to be subject to the same restrictions as areas where we know that there have been a large number of cases. So, so I would be certainly in favour of those decision makers taking on board changing from the one-size-fits-all approach. The one-size-fits-all approach was entirely appropriate in the setting of a three-and-a-half-day doubling time in late March. As we're in May now, hopefully, you know, let, let's hope that after May 11, we potentially see some changes. And perhaps we won't see a change differentiating regional and metro areas straight away, but I'm hoping that we will ultimately get to that point. So I, I certainly agree with that, um, Bianca. And I've sort of, and I, I totally understand what Catherine's saying, that it would, it's disproportionate um, testing so much in regional areas. Yeah. Um, Bianca, did you want me to address anything else or did you want me to um, give a little bit more paediatric data? And finally, Dr Chris Cooper responds to a comment about safety and performing ENT exams on children at this time. Uh, look, uh, the quick um, answer for ENT exams is should wear a surgical, ma should wear a surgical mask um, when you do an ENT exam. Obviously, um, only do it if it's uh, going to change your management or it's an important part of your assessment. Um, but um, in, in our hospital, we're, we're um, making sure we wear a surgical mask and, and gloves. Thank you. Uh, Deb, can I pass back to you? Yes, yeah, certainly. I'm, look, I'm just going through the chat. If it's okay, I'm just going to give some answers to the ones that I can see. Um, so the false positive and false negative rate that Gemma asked, you know, it's a little bit hard to say. We know that there is a false negative rate. It's probably thought to be a bit lower than what we initially thought, but it could potentially be 
5 10%. Unfortunately, we don't really know the false positive rate, but with a very low prevalence of infection, it's thought that the false positive rate is certainly there. We can't really say what it is, but certainly when people crunched the numbers before the blitz, the thought was that the false positive rate could be unacceptably high at perhaps more than 20 or 30%. There will be some false positives identified through asymptomatic screening. So I think we should just put that out there as a, as a definite. Um, somebody has, um, Catherine had a patient that came back from the Austin. I, I, you don't need to test them just because they've come back from a metro centre. This is not the same as the days of sort of VRE where we were worried about a metro hospital. So if, and certainly if they have had symptoms that were consistent with them were already tested, I wouldn't retest them unless there was significant clinical suspicion that something had been missed. And I'm always happy to take calls about any of those um, cases. And in response to a question about PPE use in allied health, yeah, so this is perhaps more specifically addressing areas of allied health like physiotherapy and also perhaps radiography. Um, they are, you can't perform your role as a physiotherapist unless you're very close to a patient. Similarly, you can't do the radiography or you can't perform ultrasounds without being very close to a patient. Um, in those situations, the most appropriate thing, first of all, would be a risk assessment of the patient. The most likely thing is that there's no risk. The probably the safest precaution would be a surgical mask and hand hygiene. Keeping in mind, however, and I should just want to clarify that a surgical mask still lasts about four hours as long as it's not soiled or wet. So you don't have to change a surgical mask after each person that you're seeing because we're assuming that you're not seeing them because you know, because you're contagious with something or because you're concerned that they're necessarily contagious, you're doing it as a precautionary measure, in which case it can last four hours and you don't need to keep changing it. Uh, thanks, Bianca, and just conscious of the time. Just picking up that point around availability of PPE for allied health, uh, yes, the people would be aware of the, the expansion in the criteria that's come out from the Commonwealth, and we're just currently going through requests for allied health um, based on priority groups because there definitely are priority groups within that hallowed health space which includes as deb mentioned uh, physiotherapy that are managing respiratory uh, patients and um, uh, radiography and stenography so once we've gone through those criteria we'll be distributing those noting again that the expectation of the national stockpile from the commonwealth is, is that the uh, the ppe masks are supplementary to your commercial supply. They're actually not a replacement. So, so that's that's a key thing to keep in mind. Where we're still uh, expanding with our uh, funded uh, clinic with the new one opening up in Ocean Grove, and we are hoping to to get an outcome uh, in Warrnambool. And we have um, uh, confirmation last night from the Commonwealth that um, uh, Mr. House has been approved. Uh, for uh, for Horsham, based in Horsham, so hopefully that that will be up and running in the next uh, one to two one to two weeks. Really, a key focus of what we're doing and working with the, the general practice is one around ensuring that we're uh, able to respond to the non-COVID um, patients, but also picking up now what are some of our key learnings? Are there models which has been established that uh, we can ensure we collect the information and the data so that they can be um, stood up 
for our next lot of seasonal um, issues that we actually have? And then what are the changes of practice uh, that the COVID has initiated that actually probably should remain in place post, uh, post this pandemic? But with that, what are some of the risks in, re in regards to that that um, we can support general practice to actually work through and resolve? That's probably just a, um, a brief update from where things were last week. Thank you, Glenn. Um, so, uh, Kate Graham, fantastic. She's here now. So, what before I pass over to Kate Graham, I would like to thank um, Chris Cooper and Deb Freeman, our panelists today. And I'm pleased to say that um, both Chris and Deb will be back next week. Continue part two. So, join us again. And I'd like to hand over to Kate Graham to finish off. Thanks. Hi. Thank you, everyone. Um, my update will be incredibly brief um, because I just wanted to just flag with everyone. We've got a fantastic pathway that is available for everyone on Health Pathways for Pediatrics and COVID. Um, it was developed in conjunction with um, pediatricians and GPS work in emergency at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Um, so that's available along with our other suite of COVID pathways that are continued to be updated. Um, and we'll catch you all next week again for a fantastic session. Thank you very much. See you all and take care out there. And please get in touch with me if you'd like to present a case. <laughs>